You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 101, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert returns to us again. It's Dr. David Graham. He's an infectious disease expert who resides in Billings, Montana. He's also the author of the FI Physician website. Uh, can be found at physician.com, which is about financial independence for physicians. But today we're going to be focusing on his new book, From Killer to Common Cold, where he lays out a roadmap and argument for how SARS-CoV-2, what's commonly known as COVID-19, will become a common cold. I found his book really great. It was very accessible, something that anyone can read whether you have a science background or not. And if you have a science background, whether it's beginner, intermediate, or advanced, you will still find things in this book that are going to speak to you and will give you a better depth of information and better knowledge of what's going on right now. This is a book that needs to be written. It's something that needs to be discussed. And what's most important about his book is he talks about what is going to happen between now, where we have a pandemic and regional epidemics, and when it becomes a cold. What is that time period in between like? How do we get there? What sort of things are we looking for? And that's really where they think the book offers some great insight and really useful knowledge for you. The other great thing about the book, it's a very short read. It's only about 85 pages, and you can read it in just about an hour or two. But again, it's pretty dense, not a lot of fluff. Stuff that will help you understand the current situation, SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. the coronavirus, and really why it's similar yet different from other viruses and other pandemics that we've seen in the world. So I think it encapsulates all that really well. It's well worth picking up a copy. If you want, obviously it'll be located at the show notes page at theparadox.com. That again is T-H-E-P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, so theparadox.com slash 101. And you'll find some links to other things. Previous episodes we've had with Dr. Graham where we talked about COVID and also a link to his website, fiphysician.com. I want to encourage you to continue to sharing the show with your friends and colleagues and family members. The show continues to grow and I have no one else to thank but you. Also, I'm now going to be part of the Doctors Podcasting Network. I'm not sure exactly what that'll mean, except there'll probably be some advertising, which will help cover a little bit of the rent here. But more importantly, increase the reach of the show so that more people can get this important information. We talk about the medical system, obviously the delivery system, but also innovators and interesting things. And certainly we were puzzling out what COVID-19 is going to look like, like today, these sorts of things as well. Finally, I'll thank the patrons at patreon.com slash the paradox, those people who pledge monthly and support the show financially to help keep the lights on and the computer powered up. And I do have a new computer, which will hopefully help the audio quality from episode 102 and beyond. I would like to apologize for Dr. Graham's audio a couple times during the show. And this is just what happens when you talk to a guy who lives on a ranch in the middle of nowhere in Montana. And so internet 
activity is a bit spotty at times. And so I'm going to blame his internet connection and not my own because I'm the host and I have that prerogative. Well, without further ado, our discussion with Dr. David Graham on the transitional phase from his new book, From Killer to Common Cold. Enjoy. Well, hey, returning guest, Dr. David Graham is here with me again. He's an infectious disease physician from Montana who has now written a book, From Killer to Common Cold, speaking, of course, about SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. COVID-19. Dr. Graham, thanks for joining the show. It's good to see you again, Eric. It's, it's all we think about, right? Sadly, I feel like in the OR, that's about all I talk about with anyone. Uh, I want to first say that you know I read your book, and I think it's great. I think for people who are... Uh, want sort of a, a good encapsulation of the science and where we are sort of from a virus standpoint in the pandemic. Now we're speaking, it's uh, late September, almost October. I think it gives a good a, a good idea of sort of where we are, where we've been, and some sort of reasonable prediction as to where we're going. And, and I think you do not have to be uh, have a super in-depth knowledge of science. And so I think that is that makes it makes it more... Um, approachable, I guess, for the, the public. But there's enough basic science there for someone like me to kind of like to uh, get some things out of it. So I think it, I, I hope it'd be a good contribution. I hope that you'll have some success in uh, this distribution of the book. Well, thank you. I, I do too. But, you know, honestly, I, I didn't, I didn't write it for that. I, I wrote it because I was just sick of no one telling us what was going to happen. You know, well, well, there's a couple reasons, but one is, is just that that with the, the give and take of science and people being so careful about not telling us, you know, what, what the next couple of years are going to be. I mean, you and I, Eric, know that this is going to be the common cold in a couple of years. So how come no one is saying that? You know, we, we see a couple things on the Atlantic now and again um, about it becoming an endemic coronavirus. But, but that, that, you know, how, how do you know where you are unless you know where you're going to be? You know, so it, it gives us a better sense of where we're headed. And and frankly, I also just wanted to write it down because it is a little bit of a prediction. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to put the cards on the table and let's see, you know, two or five years from now what, what all falls out. And I would just say that also this book will be available at the website. If you go to theparadox.com slash 101, this will be episode 101. I've now finally made it into triple digits. So uh, congratulations. You're my first. Thanks. You're my first guest to be on triple digits. Um so let's just kind of talk about, I guess, let's talk about the basic structure of the book. And you, you you start out talking about what a virus is and what it's looking to do. I mean, like any organism, I guess you could say, although we could argue that a virus is not an organism, <laughs> but uh, but it, it is looking to reproduce. I mean, it's sort of from its most basic function. And so that's what viruses do. And they're sort of, that's, and they're very basic, right? They don't do anything, you know, they don't build skyscrapers or anything like that. They, they pretty much just... Yeah, they just exist to continue existing, right? Yeah, they're they're the the ultimate minimalists, right? They only carry around with them what they need to make more copies of themselves, and you know it's it's kind of fun to think about. But if they didn't make more copies of themselves, then they wouldn't be here for us to to notice them. So it's an interesting phenomenon uh, in, in science is that uh, an episode happens because if it wasn't there, then we wouldn't be able to observe it. So it's kind of a tautology or a truism that that is the function of a virus. That's what the virus tries to do is make more of itself. Right. And I think just to back up even a step further, so the virus works actually by your by making your body do its work for it, right? And so... Uh, when you look at bacteria, bacteria actually reproduce on their own. They don't actually um, they don't actually invade the the host, which is our body, 
and then use our own cellular mechanisms to reproduce them reproduce themselves and so so in some ways you could say the the way you defeat a virus it makes it trickier than with a, a bacteria for that reason right yeah so uh, there are some bacteria that do live intracellularly so um, but they don't use our machinery to replicate they have their own machinery with them so and why that is challenging then is that in order to kill a virus, we wind up killing ourselves. And if we want to have a therapeutic, a drug, uh, a lot of times there's toxicity because in order to kill the virus, we have to kill our, our healthy cells um, because we're killing our own cellular machinery to, to kill the, the virus. So, and then we rely on things like uh, vaccines because our body's way of getting rid of these viruses is to actually go and, and kill the infected cells. So you've got these antibodies which try to catch the virus between the cells, but then also these uh, T cells that actually kill infected cells and stop the spread that way. So viruses are by their very nature minimalist, but also very tricky. Um, they just use what, what they have to get us, that they make our cells into zombie cells. That's sole function is to make more, more virus. Something analogous would be a cancer, right? Because cancer is basically a, your cell, your own cells have sort of gone crazy and they just sort of continue reproducing at a, a rate they shouldn't. Uh, and they can move around and they can spread to other parts of your body. And so your body essentially has to kill itself. So it's sort of like a viral medication where you need to kill your own cells in order to, to protect yourself. And for chemotherapeutic is you're actually killing killing host cells. Again, uh, you're killing yourself, <laughs> your own cells, in order to stop the cancer from spreading. So in that sense, there's sort of similar mechanisms. Uh, and I guess your immune system, in some ways, the, the same parts are kind of working in, to fight off a cancer just like it is for a virus. When, uh, when we're looking at the, I think before we talk about vaccines, which I think are important, I think you need to talk about the, the reproduction and and how we look at determine herd immunity, herd immunity threshold. There are lots of terms sort of thrown around. R not R effective. R you know RT. What exactly for for the layperson? What do you have to what do you have to focus on? And how do you just sort of describe the things that we have to focus on before we talk about what the vaccine's impact can be on this virus? Yeah, sure. Interesting question. So I I actually break from the popular mainstream doctors because I don't believe herd immunity tells the whole story. So when we're talking about the infamous R0, that is how effectively a virus replicates in a community. And it assumes no immunity. Um, however, it does take things into account such as um, what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. That's uh, masking and physical distancing and stuff like that. So we can affect the R0 and lower it by sheltering in place, right? But fundamentally, um, R0 doesn't take uh, immunity into place so that um, herd immunity um, as derived from R0 really doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's this other value, RE or R effective, which does take um, uh, immunity into effect. Um, but what we have to understand with uh, COVID is that there is not going to be long lasting permanent immunity to it. And we know this for, for a couple of reasons, and we don't really have to look at, at, at COVID to understand this. We just have to look at the other human coronaviruses. So we know even after natural infection with these endemic or, or uh, coronaviruses that are always around, there is no long-lasting long immunity to it. 
So how are you going to get herd immunity against something that you don't get permanent immunity against? It works well with measles, it works well with chickenpox, but are not and RE do not explain um, COVID. So I actually looked a little bit in the literature and found uh, a term called herd protection and herd protection threshold. And what's interesting about that, you know, say malaria, you can control malaria with a, um, a bed net. And, and what does that have to do with immunity, right? But that actually stops the vector, the mosquito from biting the, the human and, and transmitting malaria. So there are a lot of things that decrease transmission and can get us to the herd protection threshold. So our goal is not to get to herd immunity, Eric. Our goal is to get to herd protection. The tricky thing with this is is the terminology is uh, thrown around. I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone when I talk about herd immunity because, like you said, we're not going to have actually where no one's it's very unlikely, I think maybe we could safely say that, that a vaccine will protect, protect you from being infected. Uh, there are some vaccines that do that. It is unlikely that this vaccine will prevent you from being infected. It will probably prevent you from being symptomatic. It may make it so that you are actually, if you get infected, that you don't actually shed the virus. And so you don't, um, you, you may replicate briefly and then you'll sort of get over it. But also that there's not going to be a durability. There won't be a lasting immunity with even a, a vaccine because the best a vaccine could do, I imagine, is is replicate your immune system's response to an inf as if you've been infected, which means that you'll have you know, immunity for a couple of years or less. We're not, you know, we're not sure yeah, at this point. We won't know it. for a couple of years. <laughs> right? right. And so, uh, and so if that's the case, it's, I, I'm trying to envision, you know, people always talk about herd immunity of let's say 80% or let's just say it's 80% for just mathematical discussion. If you, if you, if you had a perfect vaccine that prevented symptoms for a hundred percent of people uh, who get the vaccine, you'd need to, and, and there was no actual natural infection. You'd need 80% of the people to have it to reach whatever this herd immunity is to, to stop the spread. Um, but if you have something that is that lasts, let's say, a year, the likelihood of you getting everybody vaccinated within six months or a year who can, and then you have, and your vaccine has got to be, if your vaccine's like 70% effective, you're not even going to come close to, you'll never come close to whatever you know protection level we need. The best we can really hope for, I think, is is prevent large-scale epidemics that are local levels. And also, probably, it would be just like if you had an infection at one time, you get a naturally infected, and that the second time and third time you get it, you're going to be less sick. And that's probably what a vaccine is going to afford us, right? It's, you're going to bypass, hopefully, a bad infection the first time, and then you're going to have this, you know, you'll, you'll have a more mild, mild right. infection. That's right. Disease modification. Yeah, so that 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 is ultimately the hope is that 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 COVID nineteen vaccine is disease modifying. So you know everyone in the world is going to get COVID nineteen. Um, you're going to get it at some point uh, if you get vaccinated. Um, you may not get it now, but your immunity will wane. You'll get it later. Hopefully, it'll, hopefully it will just be the common cold at some point. So, but you know, with or without a vaccine, we cannot eradicate this. It's going to be around. It's so contagious that um, there's no way to avoid this not becoming um, another common cold coronavirus. There's already four of them. And in fact, one of the chapters in my book describes uh, OC43, which is a strain that jumped from cows into humans back in the uh, 1800s. And we can look at the molecular mutation rate uh, of OC43 and see 
you know, um, when it actually jumped. Um, so we, we actually have a historical or a prehistorical uh, example of where this has already happened. There, there already has been a pandemic of coronavirus in humans that's now OC43 that's caused your kid and my kid to have a cold in daycare. And our, suspe- our suspicion then is with this, that one is that over the many, many years and however many generations that isn't a virus, I'm sure that's, <laughs> I don't know how many <laughs> virus generations can be in a hundred years. Uh, but that there's been mutations towards being more benign, which most virus, which most viruses tend to mutate towards, so that they're less like, so they're more likely to make it to the next host, right? So that you can, they can replicate. They're not killing off their host, and they, but they make someone symptomatic enough so that they can actually spread, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now remember that the goal of the virus is not to be more benign. The goal of the virus is to make more copies of itself. So if it does that and effectively becomes um, more benign, then that's what it's going to do. Um, but all things being equal, if you kill your host immediately or if you kill your host never, which one is going to spread? Well, the one that has the higher chance of spreading is the one that doesn't kill its host. So all right. things being equal, a more benign strain will predominate over time because it's more effective at making more copies of itself. At some point, the the virus has to uh, it, it has to become well. People have to actually be able to get it and not, and it has to be, and we're not going to all die. We're going to have the same symptoms. Like I cannot imagine that we're going to have this, this sort of symptoms and this sort of ICU admissions and hospitalizations and oxygen requirements, in perpetuity. Right. At some point, people are going to get used to the virus for better, for lack of a better term, or they're going to have more milder symptoms. Right. Because once enough people have had it or been infected either naturally or through the vaccine. Our assumption is that we're going to we're going to have this and we're going to continue getting it and there'll be no stopping it, but it won't be something that we'll be concerned about. Yeah. So that, that that's that's actually a fascinating little idea that I've explored quite a bit in the book. It's, it's something I call the transitional phase. So after we have herd thresh, uh, after we reach herd protection and we we no longer have epidemic spread of this you know, what happens then in the two to five years before this becomes the common cold. And what we don't really understand about this virus yet is is why does it kill who it kills? So this is truly a novel virus and it hasn't had time to select out people that are more susceptible um, from dying from it. So this is a fascinating thing if you look at, you know, areas where malaria uh, um, is endemic, where malaria transmits, that's where you see, Uh, sickle cell genes and thalassemia because you're less likely to die from malaria because of it. So malaria actually caused selective pressure and and changed uh, human genes um, that's likely to die if you have these certain genes. So what we don't really understand about COVID-19 is that there are, you know, say some people that are more susceptible um, from dying from this. So the question is, is can a vaccine prevent people dying from this, or is it inevitable that a certain percentage of, you know, especially old folks that may not respond to immunity, you know, with or without a vaccine, are we going to lose a certain percentage of highly susceptible older folks that that don't have a, um, a disease-modifying response to a vaccination? So I, I think that's a question still out there. Uh, so when we're looking at going forward, I you know, I'm trying to play play out this transitional phase because I think I, I can envision what it's going to be like when you go up to the vaccine. And, and I'm going to assume at this point, we're going to have a workable vaccine by sometime in the spring or summer of next year. 
where it'll be at least widely distributed enough at that point that and millions of people in the United States can get it. You know, it's questionable whether children will be getting it right away. I imagine they won't be. Uh, the elderly won't be getting it probably right away. I don't think because it's because although they're the most vulnerable population, they're also not going to have been tested much like children. And so I think people will be very hesitant to to approve it for you know the elderly or the very young until later until there's more you know further trials. Um, but even then, we have the vaccine, and let's say a decent amount of people get it, uh, you're still going to have to have people practicing much the same as they are now as far as uh, reduced gatherings. You're going to have to have people wearing masks still. And I suspect that'll go through even through the next year. I mean, wouldn't you guess? I mean, I, th- I, I, don't, I don't think we can know this, but it, my hunch is it's still going to be quite some time that we're going to be kind of in this limbo phase where even though because not enough people will have either been vaccinated or will have gotten the, gotten SARS-CoV-2 to make us feel comfortable that, well, now it's the second round, and so now everyone can probably just go back to normal <laughs> as much as whatever that might be. Yeah, right. So, so once we've reached the herd protection threshold and there's no longer epidemics, that doesn't mean cases don't still happen. And then the, the real challenge is, is, you know, our vulnerable populations, we can still have little forest fires and nursing homes, and it can really still affect people. And, and there will still be hospital admissions and there still will be deaths uh, until everyone has actually had this and, and proven that they're not one of the more susceptible folks to this. So yeah, so masks will be important still in certain situations and, and um, physical distancing. Um, you know, right now we're not really sure what level of antibodies is protective or do we have to measure T cells to be protective? So we're gonna learn a lot about this, but you know, even if we do get a broadly distributed vaccine with with the challenge of people saying, hey, you know, if I get COVID, it's gonna be mild, why would I risk getting it's it's going to be a good long while before we're we're out of the woods here and out of the transitional phase. Yeah, I mean, I've just looking at the 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 side effect profile, and it sounds it seems like at least the initial vaccines that are in phase three trials right now, they look like the side effect pro- profile is pretty lousy for a couple. I mean, it's a couple of days of fever and myalgias, and I'm just feeling kind of lousy. It looks like, and then to expect people to come back a month later for a booster, which almost almost certainly no matter what vaccine is introduced is probably going to have a booster it you're going to get a lot of people who aren't going to come back yeah i think especially for the young and healthy people feeling lousy missing work or whatever right. i mean if that's the reaction they're not going to want to come back and get, yeah. you know, get another one yeah you think about all the people that think the flu shot gives you the flu well the, the covid shot's going to give you covid isn't it if you're achy for a couple of days and have chills and low-grade fevers i'm sure we're going to start hearing that story pretty quick oh yeah no question and, it, you know, it's very interesting. We have an experiment right now as we're speaking end of September again, 2020. The state of Florida looks like they're, I mean, all indications are going to totally open up. <laughs> so they're going to, we're going to really test, uh, you know, the hospital capacity and, and the natural sort of herd protection that's already present, which, you know, you and I can only speculate how many people have actually had it and we're totally, who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 but didn't develop COVID-19. Uh, you know, maybe as much higher numbers than we think, because maybe antibodies don't tell the whole story. It's, or maybe people just are totally not susceptible or more percentage of people can't get it for whatever reason. Um, but I think we'll probably have a lot of answers to those things, whether, <laughs> whether people like that answer or not. 
right with Florida. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And New York before that and, and California and the coast. So, you know, right now we're seeing the, the middle of the country get hit, hit by this, right? And, and, and that's probably because we haven't had a lot of uh, immunity built up in here. And more than that, we've let our guard down and, and we've gotten COVID fatigued to all of this as well. So, so how, how are things going there in Michigan right now? We have almost, I, so I have to be very careful how I answer this because, because uh, your, your, your personal experience is very much reflected by your person. Your, your impression right, is very right. much affected by your personal experience. Right. And, and at least my impression in Michigan is it's very, there's not much uh, outside of college campuses, uh, which there's been a large, you know, outburst at most of the universities, which is very interesting, right? Because we have um, those kids are being tested quite frequently. They're gathering. And as soon as they start gathering, you see these outbreaks. We've seen hundreds of students at Michigan state at Grand Valley and not Michigan so much, but, um, but they also were testing these kids a lot more. So you wonder how many of these kids would have just not ever actually been tested for, uh, COVID any beforehand, I, I just, but it, it, the answer is, as far as positivity rate, it's still very low in the community. When you have a testing, it's I think like 2% or 2.5% here in where I am. And it's never really been more than like three, which is pretty low. There to Wisconsin and what's going on there. And I think to the lower peninsula. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is so much a local phenomenon. And I think it's really hard for people to grasp that because it's probably much more a county level or even maybe even smaller in some way, in some ways than it is actually a statewide or certainly national. And so you'll see a, you'll see an explosion of cases in France. Well, France is a really big yeah, place. Absolutely. Right? So just saying you have a lot of cases in France, it might mean like there are three communities that are really busy and then there's nothing anywhere else in the country. And so if you ever to have a institute, some new policy for the whole country, well, that may not make much sense because you know, I, I imagine France is much like the United States. Rural is very different than urban. and you know, Right. right. And I, I try to make the case in the book that, I mean, cases don't matter. How many cases you have doesn't matter. It's not good or bad. There is no worse than that. And, and when you look at a number like the United States, you know, who cares? We don't have our hospitals take care of the United States. That this, this epidemic is local, it's regional, and we have to look at you know, what is going on in our local regional area to know, you know, what to do about it. So this, this brings the, the question, you know, what is the appropriate strategy? So if we're going to go through a transitional phase, which I think clearly we're going to go through some transitional phase, whatever people want to call it, where we have this, where we're, you know, have, I don't want to say cure, but we actually have vaccines. We have strategies to prevent this from causing lots of problems, but we have to get to that point where it becomes endemic. Right. And th- some countries are in different places than others. And you look at, I mean, I think a good example is New Zealand because they, they had, they had eradicated the disease as far as they could tell for almost four months or so. Uh, I think it was something like that, like 120 days. And then all of a sudden, wham, they've got like 30 cases. Now we'd, you know, be excited if we just had 30 cases in our whole country. But, um, but their, their progression in that to the transitional phase, they're sort of like, at the beginning, essentially, right? I mean, they've hardly had any cases. And so they have no natural immunity from it. So they're going to have to rely almost entirely on, on a, a vaccine. But even with a vaccine, in some ways, the, the irony is, if they don't have any virus circulating within their country and they have a vaccine, the vaccine's really not going to be of any use because no one will, because there's not going to be any ability for anyone to actually get exposed to any at some point, right? Or 
Am I just thinking about this kind of funny? Yeah, you just have to keep the borders closed, right? You just you can't reopen to people coming into visiting you. But because guess what they're going to yeah. bring with them? Right. So at some point, everybody's going to, like you said, everybody's probably going to get this, right? Because we're not, you look at some viruses, and like let's say measles. Uh, it, you can easily go your entire career without ever seeing a measles case. Uh, but we know it's around because as soon as people stop getting vaccinated, you know, the immunity levels come down, then, then there's a measles outbreak somewhere. Um, it, it's, but it, SARS is not, COVID-2 is not going to be like that. It's not going to be just where when the vaccination levels go down, then suddenly there's a there's an outbreak of it because we're talking about something that has immunity, at least from a vaccine standpoint, the immunity is, such, is probably going to be so short, short-lived that unless everyone's getting a booster religiously every year, I don't know, two years, maybe six months, it's hard to know, uh, that you're going to have these, you're just going to get these these waves of infections and there's really no way you're going to, you're going to be able to contact trace. And unless you truly keep your economy trapped down into uh, wearing masks and social isolation forever. Yeah. And, and I don't know that waves of infection um, is the right terminology. You know, we think about like influenza and even though we get influenza vaccine every year, there, there's still cases of influenza. So, you know, some years are worse than others. Uh, it's worse in some places than others, some populations um, because of a lack of vaccine are worse than others. So, you know, there'll, there'll be little areas that kind of light up. Um, kids will carry this in their nose. They'll give it to grandma who got the, you know, shot six months ago, it didn't work. So um, sporadically, we're gonna see little, little outbreaks, little epidemics, but they're gonna be much smaller because there will be some immunity in the community. Ooh, I like that, immunity in the community. You're gonna to have to maintain a level of lockdown for your country. We'll just call it lockdown for lack of a better term, of mask wearing, intense mitigation, uh, limited social gathering. Because if you want people to not ever get the get SARS-CoV-2 or have these mini epidemics, because it's unlikely you're going to have a vaccine that's going to be super duper effective. Even if it is fairly effective, you're going to have to get boosters all the time. It's you're going to have all kinds of holes in your coverage, and people are going to have to get this at some point, probably where they don't have full antibody protection either from their previous infection or a vaccine, and so they're going to have to be relying on some other immune protective aspect, whether it's T cells or something else that we don't understand, right? I mean, so even if you're a country that is done really well, at some point, you're just going to have to deal with this kind of blowing through your country, your community or whatever, because there's just no, there's really no, there's going to be no stopping at some point, right? Yeah. So let, let's take it to the extreme for a second and talk about what we do in healthcare. Now, if you were going to take care of someone with chicken pox, Eric, even though you've had chicken pox or immune to it, you would put on an N95 and gowns and gloves and a face shield um, because you can't guarantee that you're immune to it, right? right? So are we going to have the CDC proposing the same absurd um, proposals for healthcare providers that just because we don't know that you're immune to COVID or not, that we're going to continue with the, um, the gowns and the gloves and the masking forever in the hospital. Well, that is an extreme measure, but actually tell me what's going to happen. Like, it, it doesn't seem like we can do that in the community, but where is the right fit of um, you know, physical distancing and masking versus getting back to the, the old, old new normal, right? 
Yeah. And I guess it, the, the question really is, how do you know when you've moved out of the transitional phase to endemic? I mean, because that was the one thing that you didn't right. really address in your book. I mean, you kind of say that we're going to get there. I'm like, well, okay, but how do you know when you're there? Yeah. So when it behaves just like the current common cold coronaviruses do. So currently, you know, the common cold coronaviruses do occasionally kill children, um, but more commonly they'll call, cause a COPD exacerbation or they can cause a viral pneumonia in folks with severe immunosuppressive conditions. But we are, when it's endemic is when the transition phase ends. So when it is the fifth common cold coronavirus and, you know, when a kid comes in with a, a viral pneumonia, you swab their nose and lo and behold, there it is on your routine multiplex PCR. It's COVID-19. You know, you're not, oh, it's COVID-19. You're like, yeah, it's the common cold. That's when we're done with the transitional phase. And so that could be many years. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to say. And really the um, uptake and the effect uh, uh, efficacy of the vaccine is, is really what's going to make it, you know, between two and five years is my guess. You know, we'll get there. We're going to get there. Everyone's going to get this. And by the second or third time you get this, it's just going to be the common cold, if not a um, exposure to it. Or, you know, there's cross-reactive immunity too, right? So if you've been exposed to another beta coronavirus, then perhaps you won't get, you know, SARS-CoV-2 this time. So there, there's all these um, interactions and, and eventually it will just be the cold. The impossible thing, of course, to predict the future is because you can't know what the future holds, right? And so we are always, we're, you and I are talking here, we're assuming there's be a vaccine and that'll be okay by next year, but there's no guarantee there will be. Um, and if there's not, then then you have, the only way to do that is for everyone to have been basically to get infected at some point, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. With, with or without the vaccine, this is what's going to happen. You know, it just changes the, the time course. What do you think this, uh, the future holds for us for the next, let's say through the end of next year through 20. I mean, do you think my prediction is fairly accurate that there's still going to be strict mask guidelines and there's still going to be limited in social gatherings? Or do you think at some point politically, People are just going to say we've had enough, and we're just not going to, we're just not going to do anymore, and just you know, whatever. We'll just go, we'll just take our chances. Right, and I, I think it's already happening, isn't it? Well, I mean, you certainly feel that in some some areas for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, hopefully we can get past this um, upcoming election, and and politicians will start making better decisions as well. You are far more optimistic than I am. I. I I have, so many, uh, yeah. I have so many people who yeah. tell me that it's going to change things radically. And I just do not see how an election is going to significantly change. I realize it's been politicized, but so much is politicized in our culture right now in, in this, in the United States right. that I don't see that right. whether there's an election or not is, is significantly affecting the fact that people are behaving certain ways. Like, um, I mean, I think people have chosen their sides, but I don't know that that flips. And if it does flip, then it will just flip 180, right? I mean, if, if that's really the thought, and then all that you care about is whoever, you know, you're just trying to score points, you're going to still continue trying to score points the other direction, you know, right after it's done. It, I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I, but I, I just don't, I don't truly believe that, that the, the media is still going to enjoy getting clicks. Uh, the scientists are still going to enjoy having funding for research on this. And, you know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done and sort of data collection and therapeutics and, uh, you know, different ways of treating us 
but I don't see that there's going to be the, I don't think the incentives change significantly November 5th. I'm glad you said it and I didn't, Eric, but I, I do say that in the book as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about the, the, the book? I mean, I, I know you just published and um, I'm very excited. I'm the first person who got a chance to interview you. And again, it'll be uh, located at theparadox.com slash 101. You can find access to that. You can obviously search on Amazon for the book too. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, I, I did try to write this at a level that that you didn't really need a lot of scientific uh, uh, knowledge, but but really trying to answer the question, what's next and what can we do about it? Because um, I, I think the, the, the destiny, destiny of COVID-19 is written. You know, the cards are on the table. This is what's going to happen. Let's deal with it. Let's move forward with that knowledge and, and um, you know, do the best for for ourselves and our communities. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great message. And I do think it is very important for us to know where we're going to end up. I think, you know, you may not know how you're going to get there and how long it's going to take, but to know where the journey is going to lead, I think offers some hope that it's, that we'll come out the other end and that we're going to just have another cold and we don't know what's going to happen on the way there. But um, I, I do wish that more people would talk about this because I do feel like too often we are just living in the moment um, and, and that people get, when you don't see where, where you're going, you can really freak out and, <laughs> and it, and it's causing a lot of, I think, undue panic for people not realizing what's coming. Agreed. Well, Dr. David Graham from Montana, infectious disease specialist and author of From Killer to Common Cold. Thanks so much for being on the Paradox and I'm sure we'll head up base again in the future. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Paradox.